last time we did baptisms. The next time we're going to do baptisms is next week. And so if you'd like to be baptized, we don't know if it'll be 70 degrees or 30 degrees outside. Sorry. But we'd love to have you. And so if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, um, you can come that day even, and we'll baptize you and uh, help you out with towels and all that kind of business. But uh, we'd love to hear your story first. And uh, the one thing that we want to know is if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And so if you want to share that with somebody today, you can go do that at the Blue Tent, whether they're doing the volunteer and the group sign-up stuff, uh, like Wendy said in the announcement video earlier. But I just want you to know that uh, baptisms are happening next week, and if that's one person, we'll do it. And if it's hundred people will do that too. So we'd love to have you. And if you want to do that, feel free to let us know. And uh, also, it's November. I can't even hardly believe that, uh, that it's already November. I don't know if time's going by faster because I'm getting older and it's rolling downhill now or it's because the weather is so crazy and it's been raining for like a month straight. I'm not sure why, but it's surprising to me that it is November. And uh, obviously the month of Thanksgiving, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving here in a couple weeks. And we have a lot to be thankful for. First and foremost, obviously, our salvation through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, but also lots of other things to be thankful for. And uh, thankful for you. I wanted to just say thanks today. It marks November this year, marks the end of our three-year capital campaign that we've been doing. Uh, we started in 2012, and we are coming to the end. Next week, I'm going to make some announcements about that, about where we're at, uh, what your giving has done. I think it's, it's over 250 families uh, have been involved in this campaign, have given above and beyond your tithes, uh, many of whom sa- sacrificially. Today, I'll just say a simple thank you, so thank you. Uh, but next week, we're going to celebrate that, and we're going to make some announcements about things that are happening, what your money's done up until this point, and then where we're at moving forward. And so you don't want to miss next week as we talk about some of those things. But for those of you who've given, uh, I just want to say thank you. So thank you very much uh, for that, and come next week, and we'll talk more about it. Today, uh, we're going to keep going in our series. We've been in Matthew chapter 5, doing a series through the Beatitudes called So You Want to Be Happy. Today, we're going to be really aggressive. We're going to try and do two verses and one Sunday which typically, you're not here all day. The other service isn't still in here, okay? So we're going to be able to do this. Uh, Two verses today, verses 6 and 8 in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have your phone like Jad was reading from earlier, your Bible, whatever it is, um, go ahead and pull that out. And uh, God knows if you're on Twitter instead, shaming you. Did you get that? Just kidding. Let me pray and uh, get my heart right and uh, get our hearts focused on the Lord. Just ask him to do the work that he does when we open up his word. He says it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and so he may want to do surgery on our hearts this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that we get to gather together in your name. I pray for the believers that are in Paris today, and uh, I pray for the missionaries and pastors that are there that you would use uh, some of these tragedies to bring victory for your name, that people would come to know you. I pray for things that have happened in Kenya this week. I pray that you would uh, have your hand on uh, those who've lost loved ones there for the persecution that's continually happening in Syria. I pray for those believers, Father, that you put a shield of protection around them as they gather in your name. I pray for us. God, there's many stories of different things that are happening in lives, in marriages and in finances and in jobs and victories and uh, new people moving here and folks that aren't sure what to do next with their lives. I pray that you would just speak to our hearts in this time that we, we stop and we open your word and we study it together. I pray you'd speak to me even as I speak. I've already studied this passage, but you can do what you want. And I pray for somebody that they would trust Christ today. And I pray for each of us that you'd have us take a next step in our faith journey, uh, wherever that is, from wherever we're at. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today you'll look at the passage, if you have your Bible on already, you can see Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 is where we're going to start, and we're also going to look at verse 8, uh, but I'm going to ask you, in light of that passage, do you ever crave certain kinds of food? The passage says to hunger and thirst, and so you think about what are the things that you hunger for? What are the things that you crave or long for from time to time? Because I bet you if I asked all of you here, uh, however many hundred people are here today, that you would come up with however many hundred different answers. I mean, lots of people like chocolate. I'm sure that most people like ice cream as a craving. I was thinking about it with my, my wife and her last pregnancy. You know, pregnant women get these unique cravings. She really she didn't want this every time, but in the fourth pregnancy, she wanted barbecue all the time. So we'd be random, just at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, she'd just, I'd like some barbecue. Well, okay, I can eat barbecue. <laughs> and I gained pregnancy weight through that process. For her, it was barbecue then. For me, I love cheese. I like cheese all the time. So it doesn't matter what kind of cheese. I like pimento cheese, so kind of creamy cheese. I like uh, cheese curds, which is kind of gross when you think about how they're made. I like cheddar cheese, uh, you know, pepper jack cheese. It doesn't matter if it's orange or if it's white or if it's put together. If it's a fancy cheese that has, like, raisins in it, I don't like raisins, but I'll eat it in cheese. I like all kinds of different cheeses, so I'll crave it periodically. The other day in our office, it was uh, middle of the day. You know, sometimes you get that lull around 2, 3 o'clock. I went into the, where we keep our lunches and everything in this refrigerator, and somebody had cheese sticks in there. Now, that is not fancy cheese, just so you know. 
But I was like, whose cheese sticks are these? Because I want to eat them because it's, it's cheese. I just want cheese. And so what is it for you? Maybe you're vegan. Maybe you crave nuts and fruit periodically. I don't know what it is for you. Some of you crave cheeseburgers. And so the vegans are like, that's disgusting. And people who want cheeseburgers are like, you eat nuts? Like, you know, whatever, you are nuts. And so you have all these different thoughts about different things. What do you crave? I know that in my mind, I think there's certain things that no one should crave, like cauliflower, <laughs> colorless broccoli. Like broccoli's not bad enough. Then we got cauliflower. It's like another level of bad. I was in the kitchen the other day at our house. My wife had cauliflower out. And I thought, oh, no, we're going to have it for dinner. And I have to eat it because the kids are going to be watching so that's how it is as a parent. Like, I don't want to eat it either, but I have to do it because I'm going to make you eat it. And so there, she's going to put it on there. Then we sat down to eat, and I didn't see any cauliflower on my plate. And I said, oh, you didn't use that cauliflower you had out. And my wife looked at me with a piercing look. <laughs> you know, parents are supposed to be able to communicate without saying any words. And she was trying to say, shut up. But I just let my mouth run sometimes, believe it or not. It just happens. So I'm just going, I, don't, you had, I saw the cauliflower out, but now there's no cauliflower on my plate. Why didn't you use the cauliflower? But it's okay. I don't really like cauliflower. And then I started to eat what I thought were mashed potatoes on the corner of my plate. And I realized there's the cauliflower. She was hiding it on the kids to try and trick them into eating it. Because no one in their right mind should like that, right? And do you ever look and see the different things that people around the world like? There are some unique delicacies out there. Monkey brains, there are a few countries that actually like eating monkey brains. That sounds really weird to me. Some people eat horse, we think it's ridiculous. But we eat cows, and some people won't touch a cow, and they think it's ridiculous, we eat cows. Why do we crave what we crave? In fact, think about this. Everybody likes ice cream, right? I think, I think that's true. Probably, maybe if you're lactose intolerant, you don't, but maybe there's lactose-free ice cream. I don't know. But if I said, hey, Dairy Queen, after church today, it's all head over there, we'll get a blizzard, they'll hold it upside down, if it falls out, it's free, and it's on the floor. I don't know how that works, but... Everybody likes ice cream, right? And so I, here's the blizzard I like. I like chocolate with Butterfinger crushed up in it. But do you know, does anyone pick fish-flavored ice cream? There is fish-flavored ice cream, and the answer is yes, people select it. But not most people in America. USA Today put out an article, so if you want to find out the different fun flavors of ice cream you can find around the world, you can Google that article. There is actually fish-flavored ice cream. There's some ice cream they make from jellyfish. Have you ever looked at a jellyfish and thought to yourself, I should lick that? But they take the protein from the jellyfish, they put it in an ice cream cone, and they say when you lick it that it actually glows in the dark. And it costs $200 a scoop. I wouldn't eat it for free. But it's too, somebody wants it so bad, they'll pay $200 for one scoop of that ice cream. There's another kind of ice cream called raw horse flesh ice cream. People, apparently, it's in Tokyo. If you ever tour Tokyo, you can go into an ice cream shop. Do you have raw horse flesh ice cream? Just wanted to know. I'm not going to eat it, but just wondered. Who would want that? That seems ridiculous to me, but you know what? Some people do, and it seems ridiculous to us, but when the things that we want seem ridiculous to them. Do you know why? The things that we crave or the things we've been taught will fulfill our cravings. So then think about our lives. God's purpose eternity in each one of our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that in verse 11. Put the verse on the screen. You could read it. So God's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the hearts of men. He's placed eternity in each one of our hearts, whether you claim to be an atheist or a devout follower of Jesus Christ. You have an eternal longing in your heart. Yet we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so we've got this longing in us, this eternal soul longing. And we try to fill it with many things. In America, it's popular to choose things like sex, power, position, praise from other people. It's what we oftentimes call our false gods, our idols. Because no temporary thing will ever fulfill an eternal longing. But we all want to be satisfied. Well, Jesus tells us in our passage today, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, how we can be satisfied. He says blessed, and we've talked about that word a lot in this series. It means happy. An inner deep satisfaction and security that comes from the Lord beyond just our circumstances when we oftentimes use the word happy. Makarios is the Greek term. Happy, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We all hunger and thirst, but he says for righteousness. And then why? For they will be filled. That hunger will be satiated. They will be, in other words, satisfied. So we all want satisfaction. And Jesus tells us how in our passage today. So you get the whole context. Let's read uh, from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We've been doing this series called So You Want to Be Happy. If you're with us for the first time today, uh, we've been talking about all the beatitudes, these statements of blessing that lead up to the one we're looking at today in verse 6. Verse 6 is the central one. 
Everyone until this point has built up to this one. Everyone after this point is an overflow of this one. Let me read it to you. So Jesus is really popular at this point. You can read why in Matthew chapter 4 there are crowds that are following. He's been teaching and he's been healing. And it says in chapter 5 and verse 1, Now when, they saw the, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. That was the position of a rabbi, of a teacher teaching with authority. And his disciples came to him. And so there's two crowds. There's the people that are coming around and they want to be fed and they want to be healed. They're interested in Jesus' teaching. But then there are also the disciples, those who've committed their lives to him. And he's teaching to the disciples. It says in verse 2, And he began to teach them, saying... And then he gives these statements of blessing. They're very formulaic. They're exactly the same every time. It's a blessing statement. Blessed, happy, makarios. Then it describes the people. And then it says why. Blessed, makarios. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's interesting. It doesn't seem what our world would tell us. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek. We saw the humbly dependent upon the Lord. Those who are then freed to selflessly serve others. Why? For they will inherit the earth. That seems contrary. And then here today, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, as Pastor Jason taught us last week. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there are more, but we'll stop there today. And what Jesus is doing here, he's come to the central part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Many people believe that the theme of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is based on Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus says that you must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Here in our passage today, in verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting the two different kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of the Pharisees, who everyone thought that was the most righteous person, people that could walk the earth. They were the most influential religious leaders of Jesus' day. There are only about 6,000 of them, which isn't a huge number when you think about the whole religious movement. But they were the most influential. They were the ones that were very scrupulous in trying to keep all of the Old Testament laws plus the traditions that they came up with, and they were genuine and sincere in coming up with those traditions. The way that they came up with them was they'd take an Old Testament law and they'd say, here's how you apply it, and so then we'll just make up rules about the application too. And what they ended up doing is they ended up becoming so set apart, so different than everybody else, that everybody else thought those are the people who love God the most because they're the most righteous. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's teaching us by contrast you think about it, there's a lot of ways you can teach a truth, right? I can, oftentimes I'll do an outline where I'll make a statement and then I'll teach about that statement and then I'll give an illustration and then I'll apply it. That's one way to teach. Another way to teach is you don't give a point. You just teach information, almost like a story, and then at the end, hopefully the people that are being taught go, oh, aha, now I get it. That's another way to do an outline. Another way to do an outline of teaching is to set two things against each other, to contrast them with one another. So if you want to teach about light, You talk a lot about what darkness is like, and then turn on the light. Now I see the difference. Now I see light and light of darkness. If you want to talk about something that's spicy, flavorful food, then talk about bland, like a saltine cracker with no salt on it. Eat that, or a piece of bread, and then try chips and salsa. Woo, now I see spice. It's the contrast, right? I was teaching my kids the story of David and Goliath this week. And if you know that story, Goliath is a giant in the Old Testament, nine feet, nine inches tall. I am vertically challenged, which means I'm short. And uh, I stood on a stool in my living room to try and teach them. I still wasn't quite tall enough. I was almost up to the ceiling in our house. I wasn't quite tall enough. So I told my six-year-old daughter, I said, come over here and stand next to me, and we'll get some perspective here on David versus Goliath. David, a young man, versus Goliath, this giant. So she comes over, and I wanted to teach tall, so I showed short. Then the other kids, they started throwing stuff at me because they know the story. He's the giant. Get on me. But the point was to teach the contrast. You bring my six-year-old daughter over, who's only about this tall anyways, and I'm standing up on a stool, and if you want to see the difference, if you want to see how tall, then see how short. What Jesus is showing here is a contrast between true righteousness and false righteousness. So the Pharisees, the righteousness they had was an outward righteousness. It was a false righteousness. And what he's calling us to in verse 6 is a true righteousness. And so the way Jesus was teaching in this passage was by teaching by contrast. And so that's what our outline is going to be today. We're going to look at false righteousness and true righteousness, what the difference is. And then you need to ask yourself, which one do I hunger and thirst for? Because here's the problem with false righteousness. False righteousness leads to an empty life here and no afterlife, actually. The afterlife will be terrible. It's a complete separation from God. So it's an empty life here and eternal damnation afterlife 
Because Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, if we have it on the screen, put up on the screen, let me show you what it actually says. Because a lot of people say, well, they just didn't, they missed it. They kind of, they had a lot of rules and they didn't need to. They made their lives harder than they were. No, they were going to hell. It wasn't just they were legalistic, we oftentimes say. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly, there's no question about this, not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's false righteousness. Now let's be real candid. We don't really want to talk about righteousness as much at all in our generation. We'll call it legalism, and so we'll put up guards against it. We'll say that, you know, that's if you're just really religious, and so that's for, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And there's all kinds of defense mechanisms we have to why we don't want to talk about righteousness or holiness or God's justice. Let me tell you why we really don't want to talk about it. Because righteousness sheds light on our sin. And we all have sin. And when we talk about the holiness of God, it's like shining a light right on our sin. And no one likes that. When you get used to darkness, someone turns the lights on, you don't like that. If you're sleeping, if you were sleeping this morning and your spouse or your roommate or your parents or somebody came into the room, flipped the light switch on, you've been sleeping for five hours, six hours, and then they turn this light switch on, you're going to naturally pull the covers over your head, right? Cover your eyes, tell them to turn the lights back off in a very kind way, I'm sure. Because you're righteous. No, when we get used to darkness, we don't want the light in there. This is why they killed Jesus when he came to the earth. You know that famous passage in John chapter 3 and verse 16? You may have seen it on a football game yesterday. A couple of verses later, after it talks about God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, sending his son into the world, it says in John chapter 3 and verse 19, this is the verdict. Light, talking about Jesus, has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Who does evil? All of us. And will not come into the light for fear that the, their deeds will be exposed. So it is totally normal. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've not professed faith in Jesus, so anybody in this world that's not claiming to be a follower of Christ, it is acceptable, normal, understandable, whatever phrase you want to say, that you wouldn't want to talk about righteousness. Now let me tell you, let me tell you why. Because you believe deception. You believe things that aren't true. You have an eternal longing in your soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11. And you think other things will fill it. You think that if you just had the right job, that's a false god, by the way. Anything that we put in the place of God in our lives is a false god. The Old Testament calls an idol false god. Sometimes we look around at other people's lives and think, if I just had their marriage, false god. The grass is greener, right? If I just had this job, false god. If I just had better circumstances, if I just had kids, if I just had different kids, if I just had whatever, whatever the thing is, you feel put in, if I had this man, if I had this circumstance, if I had position, if I had power, if I could have this experience, if I had this pleasure, false God, false God, false God, false God. And then Jesus' righteousness shines light on that. So of course, if you believe those deceptions, you believe those lies, of course you don't want the light shining in on that. But... Christians, let's be honest, many of us believe that too, but we also want to do what God wants us to do. We genuinely do. I think it's sincerely, we want to do what God wants us to do. We want to be righteous, but at the same time, we believe a lot of those same deceptions. And so what we want is we want to do God's will, we want to do God's plan, but at the same time, we also believe in those false gods. And so we want to do God's plan, and then we also want to go down the path of if I could get as much of this world as I could possibly get, then I'd be satisfied here. And then God's plan will satisfy me later. We're what James calls double-minded. And that's what produces a false righteousness. That was the Pharisees' problem. The Pharisees started off genuine. They read the Old Testament. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. 248 of those commands are positive. You must do this. 365 of them are negative. You must not do these things. They wanted to obey all the commands. And then as they preached their sermons and studied their Bibles, they thought, well, then the application of this command would be these things, and they came up with more rules, and there was lots of rules. The rules were not the problem. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. He's talking about the rules. Sometimes we talk about, when we talk about grace, as if the rules don't matter, and there are no commands. No, there's a lot of commands, and the commands matter, and the commands actually reveal our love. The problem was they didn't have love. They produced a righteousness they could manage, and then still maintain their false gods, their idols. Because that's what happens with false righteousness. is external, and so it never deals with our hearts. So we can have our false gods still exist and still happen, 
and then have this righteousness. And what happens for the individual is we, it deals with the dissonance in our soul. If we have this outward righteousness, then we don't have to deal with the fact that we believe all these lies. And so we can manage this, and here's the really scary thing about false righteousness. You can make everyone else think you really love God. It will work in fooling everyone but God. And so some of you, you know, you've grown up in backgrounds where there's all kinds of different rules. Growing up last week, uh, Pastor Jason was preaching. He was reading through a story where the good guy in the story had wine. And he said, that as he read it, he thought, how does a good person have wine because of his background? Because in his background, he was taught good Christians don't have wine. And they don't dance. And they certainly don't go to movie theaters. <laughs> kind of ironic, isn't it? So because my wife, she grew up in a Christian background that had a lot of rules. It was very strict. She went to a Christian school that was very strict. She was a cheerleader at this school, and it was in Michigan. And in case you didn't know, Michigan's weather in November is different than Raleigh's weather in November. It gets really cold. Well, they had a rule there that girls, women, never wore pants. Because if you wore pants, that meant you were immodest. And so even as a cheerleader, she had to wear a dress. And so one time in November, it was a basketball game. She cheered. She wore her dress. And then afterwards, she put on pants underneath the dress to walk out to the bus. One of the parents reported her, didn't go to her, by the way, which I think is funny, reported her to the administrators and said that she had pants on under her dress, which I responded to Shannon and said, why was that parent looking up your dress? <laughs> just my statement. They weren't. They just said that she had pants on. And then she got called in the office on Monday and was getting in trouble because she had pants. She said they were under my... Now, I don't know if you've seen any cheerleaders now, but I don't think Shannon's issue there was modesty. She was wearing layers of clothing. But that was the thought process because women, you just don't wear pants. It's like sinful for you to wear pants. And to me, I, I think, how do you even come up with that rule? And it's easy to do with the Pharisees to create a caricature of the rules that they obey, like the Sabbath. They did ridiculous things on the Sabbath to make sure they didn't violate the Sabbath. And we could mock that and make fun of that. But here's the reality. We all do this. In our generation, the rules are different. It's not about drinking, it's not about dancing, it's not about going to movie theaters or what clothes you wear. Instead, you better be interested in the right things as a Christian, or you're not a genuine Christian. You better not be mad about red cups, which I found out this week when I hopped on social media and thought, I didn't know red cups existed. Like, what is this about? I guess I'm in the good category, because I didn't know. And so you better feed hungry people, you better sell all your possessions, you better care about refugees... In fact, I was reading a book, uh, I'll challenge you to consider it if you want to know more about righteousness. It's a book called A Hole in Our Holiness by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And in the book, he talks about what the hole in our holiness is, and the hole in our holiness is this. We don't talk about it at all. And we use things like legalism as an excuse to not deal with real holiness. In the beginning of the book, he talks about what holiness is not. He says this, he said, if I wanted to sell a bunch of books, he said, I could sell a bunch of books if I demanded that Christians read their Bibles two hours a day, throw away their TVs, sell their possessions, adopt three orphans, and move into a commune. Which, by the way, if you take each one of those phrases, you can find people that will write whole books and have whole movements based on the fact that that is the essence of Christianity, living in a commune together. Because in Acts 2, they shared everything. There's all kinds of stuff. And so you can, feed, you can change it. Feed the hungry people. Care about human trafficking. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But what the reality is is that we can come up with these rules, and we like the rules because we can manage them. So what he goes on to say is he says, we like getting lists. Some of us like getting beat up. And then being told exactly what needs to be done to become, true spiritual, to become a true spiritual giant. It's manageable. This sort of exhortation seems promising at first, but it proves ineffective in the long run. Mere rule-keeping is not the answer because holiness cannot be reduced to a little ethical refurbishment. And so what we do is we feel better about ourselves and then other people can tell us how we're a good Christian at the same time we've never dealt with the idols in our heart because it's all external. In fact, it's an interesting study, if you'd like to do it on your own, is to go through the Gospels and see how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. Also, it's interesting to see how he dealt with people that were social outcasts, how he dealt with demons. Demons have incredible theology in the Gospels. In fact, they're often the first people to know that Jesus is the son of the living God. But you see how he deals with the Pharisees, and he keeps pressing on the same issue. And it's not that he's mad at them for keeping the rules. Oftentimes, that's how we talk about it. His anger with them, his fear for them, he weeps over them, is because they don't deal with their heart. The continual problem is their 
external stuff keeps them from thinking about what's actually happening in their heart. They're trying to travel down two roads. They have their false gods, and then you see that in the life of the Pharisees. Money and power and position. And then they seem to think that they're still righteous. And what Jesus said, he says about them in Matthew chapter 15. He quotes Isaiah. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, you hypocrites. You praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's the heart that's the problem. Is it wrong to sing songs to Jesus? No. Is it wrong that it would say your worship sounds too good? You had your hands up. You were praying during the song. That's not, that's not the issue. All that stuff, it's in vain is what Jesus said. It's all meaningless. You can sound as good as you want. You can pray all the prayers you want. The problem is your heart hasn't been dealt with, so it's all meaningless. It's a false righteousness because it hasn't been dealt with. The heart hasn't been dealt with. External righteousness is a false righteousness. In fact, if you want a whole study on just that, and if you wonder if you are a hypocrite or not, read Matthew chapter 23. We don't have time to read the whole chapter today because we're going to talk about what true righteousness is. But just a couple verses from Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees for being hypocrites. He says this in Matthew chapter 23, verses uh, 4 and 5. They, talking about Pharisees, tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus teaching by contrast, right? Because what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Put my yoke upon you. Do my work because it's easy. Oh, really? It's easy to turn away from your family and follow Jesus, even if that means a divided family. It's easy to deny yourself and to take up your cross. Well, it's easy because here's why. Jesus does the opposite of what they do. They'll teach something and just heap it on people. Now you go figure that out. Jesus enables us to do everything he commands us to do. So Jesus is the contrast here. He doesn't say there, because oftentimes that's how we interpret it, he doesn't say you heap these burdens on people and you yourselves will not do them. Oh no, they worked really hard to try and apply this stuff to themselves too. But they weren't helping others do it. The contrast is them versus Jesus. Verse 5, it goes on to say, here's why. He talks about their motives. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries that carries verses and their tassels and their garments long. They make them wide and long. They want everyone, they want a praise of people, and they will get it, and that's all they'll get. And you keep reading through Matthew chapter 23. What he keeps doing is exposing your problem is you deal with the outside, you don't deal with the inside. Verse 25, if you jump down in that passage, if you have it out, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Not because you say one thing and do something else. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, you don't see this. You're in the dark. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Then he gives another analogy. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's what's inside that's the problem. It's not that it was bad that they were doing all these rules. The bad part was that it had never dealt with their heart, and they were manufacturing things so that people could see it. And that's what false righteousness does, and it leaves you still empty because you can do religion all day long, and it doesn't touch the eternal longing in your soul because false righteousness leads to an empty life here and a terrible afterlife. But true righteousness, remember Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. So he's talking about a different kind of righteousness. He's not just saying, you've got to do more. They keep this many of the rules. You've got to keep this, just five more than they do. And then you'll be all, that's not what he means by surpasses. He's talking about a different kind of righteousness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does he say in our verse, in verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, we all hunger and thirst. He's placed a desire in our hearts, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the true righteousness. Why? For they will be filled because true righteousness leads to a fulfilled life, both here and in eternity. True righteousness leads to a fulfilled life here and in eternity. So what is true righteousness? What is the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here in this passage? Well, we can't just go look at, and here's just a little tip for studying the Bible. You can't just say, what is righteousness from Genesis through Revelation? And we'll read the word in every spot because it means different things at different places. Words are defined by their context. We know this is true in the way that we use words in our own conversation. I can use a word multiple different ways, like the trunk of a car or the trunk of a tree or the trunk of an elephant, whatever it is. We can use that word trunk and mean different things in different contexts. The word righteousness here does not mean the same thing that it means in the book of Romans when Paul uses it. 
When Paul uses it in Romans, he's talking about being declared righteous. So that when God looks at you because you placed your, your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when he looks at you, he sees you as righteous. That is true, but Jesus is teaching here to his disciples. What does the word mean here? He's talking to his disciples about longing for righteousness, and we know it doesn't just mean an outward manifestation of righteousness because he condemns that with the Pharisees. And what you see, if you'll read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is that the word righteous appears seven times in the Sermon on the Mount. Each time it becomes clear that what he's talking about is something that goes on inside, but it has an outward manifestation. What he's talking about is an inner transformation. That's the righteousness that gives you a, a longing for God's will, a longing for God's longings, a longing for him. And so the true righteousness that he's talking about is manifested in a hunger and a thirst, like we talk about that craving, for God himself, that you would desire what then he desires, that you delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You long for him, and he gives you him. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Those who seek me, find me. It's that you come to the realization that those idols you've been going after, whether it's accomplishments, whether it's outward people thinking something about you, whether it's physician, pick whatever one might be yours, you come to the realization that it's not working. I got all my goals, and I still feel empty. And you want more. You want him. That's the hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is true righteousness. It's an inner change that then is manifested on the outside. You go to that passage in Matthew chapter 23 that talked about the cup. That you can't clean the outside of the cup without dealing with the inside of the cup. But he doesn't say it's bad to clean the outside of the cup. If you deal with the inside, then the outside is clean. And I was thinking this, just this week about this passage and thinking when Jesus taught it, did he just say that to everyone and they just knew? Or, or maybe he grab a cup and say something. So this morning, um, I grabbed some cups out of our dishwasher that are clean. These are clean cups. And I went down to a creek, just took advantage of the fact that it's been raining for like a month here in Raleigh. And I went to a creek and uh, thought I'd dump some dirt in there. So it's a clean cup, but then he put the stuff in there and thought I would give an offer to our congregation today of a nice little drink. And so I'll pour the water in. You'll see how it'll look here in a minute. Almost like chocolate milk from there, doesn't it? Minus the bristles. But what if I clean the cup up? Would anybody come and drink this? Honest invitation. If you'd like it, you can come down here. It's still a little dirty. In fact, I could probably promote this as the next diet drink, right? High in iron. All natural. God's given us everything we were supposed to have in the creek that I went to this morning. And plus maybe some deathly amoebas. I don't know. But if I clean this cup, but I just keep polishing the outside of the cup, eventually you'll want this, right? But if I sprayed it with bleach, and I, like, I was very clean on the outside, there's nothing I can do to the outside of this cup that's going to make you want what's inside this cup. But if the inside of the cup is clean, then why wouldn't you take a drink? It's clean. I get thirsty when I preach. It's good stuff. Jesus' point, it doesn't matter what you do to the outside of the cup. You can stop smoking. You can stop swearing. You can, oh, I might have got myself wet. Sorry, Lee. I don't know. There we go. You can, you can clean up your act. You can wash your hands, because that's a lot of what the Pharisees did. You eat with clean hands. You eat with dirty hands, Jesus. Why do you care about what's going on inside my body? Isn't it what comes out of your heart that's the issue? And out of the heart comes murder. And out of the heart comes greed. And out of the heart comes gossip. And out of the heart comes slander. It's not what you go in. It's what comes out. But you can st- you can get you wear the right clothes. Make sure you wear a dress, ladies. My wife, I think, has pants on this morning. I don't think it's a rebellious act. Make sure you don't go to the movie theater, but you can watch it at home. Make sure you... You can modify all that stuff. Make sure you feed refugees and make sure you filled some boxes up for us for the Christmas thing. See, that can be something that's good when it comes from the heart. And it can also be something that's not because you're deceiving yourself with your outward manifestations and everyone else thinks that you're good and you can fool us all. It's the danger of false righteousness, but true righteousness is God gets in and he deals with your heart. So you start looking at, talking about looking at how Jesus interacts with people through the Bible. I was thinking this week about John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is an interesting passage because in John chapter 3, I read you from John chapter 3 already, he was talking to a guy who was thought of as righteousness. His name was Nicodemus. He was the teacher of Israel. And in John chapter 4, he meets a woman who's got a background. When you read John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, you can do that on your own. We can't get into all this in in one sermon. But in John chapter 4, what ends up happening is Jesus is in a place called Samaria, 
which Jews weren't even going to go to because they hated it so much. He's a Jewish man. It's the middle of the day. He's sitting at a well. He's breaking social norms like crazy, and this woman comes. Men didn't talk to women. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and you didn't go to the well in the middle of the day. The only reason you go to the well in the middle of the day is because you didn't want to see anyone else, and that's why this woman was coming. And she comes, and she's the kind of woman that you can see in her eyes. Life's been rough. She's had a hard time. And Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And she talks to him about, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. And then Jesus says to her, interesting statement to start a conversation. John chapter 4, I think we have the slide. Verse 10, I think it is. Yeah. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked me. (laughs) You don't have a jar. And I'd have given you living water. He goes on, you'd never thirst again. She says, where do you get this water? She's confused. She doesn't understand. And then he starts to share with her that he knows everything about her. Now, to our knowledge, they've never met on this earth before. But Jesus says, why don't you go get your husband? I'll tell you the rest of the answer. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. And the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. You're shacking up with somebody. How would you feel if you were that woman at that moment? Oh, I'd like to get out of here. <laughs> don't know who you are, but this needs to be over with. And then Jesus says to her, and you've had five husbands. You know what Jesus is doing? He's putting his finger right on her false God. You think men are going to fill the eternal desire in your soul, and they won't. So you know what she does then? She starts to talk about the Bible. Well, some people, the Jews say we should worship on this mountain. I think we should worship on this mountain. What do you think, Jesus? Where should I go to church, Jesus? And how many of us in our spiritual journey, we get dry, there's a longing in our soul, and what do we do? If I just went to a different church, if I just read the next Christian book, if I just try, we try these things, what about going to Jesus? Jesus doesn't let her get away with it. Jesus says, you don't even understand. You don't even know who you worship. I know the Messiah is coming. He says, I'm the Messiah. Transforms her life. But then I was thinking about the story. And I wondered, if I had been at the well that day, what would Jesus have said to me? Oh, Jesus, there's this verse. I can't understand it. I wish I could figure it out. I'll tell our church all about it. If you'll tell me, then I'll tell them. Would you tell me? Hey, Scott, let's first talk about you're thinking these things are going to deliver in your life, and they won't. Let's deal with your false gods. What would he say to you? If you were at the well, what would Jesus put his finger on in your life? For that woman, it was men. Might not be men for you. Might be. What would it be? If I could just get everybody to do what I wanted them to do around me, if I could just be in control, maybe that's your idol. If I could just, if it would just and God, it's got to be your plan because you say, and if you would, and we can justify and rationalize, that's how we deal with the dissonance in our heart. But he wants to deal with the idol because that's what true righteousness does. It deals with the heart. It cleans the inside of the cup, and then the outside stuff takes care of itself, and it comes from the heart. Jesus wasn't condemning worship when he said, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're condemning heartless worship. Jesus wasn't condemning the works that the the Pharisees would do. They would travel across seas to make conversions. The problem was they would convert people to their false righteousness, and Jesus says now they're twice the sons of hell as they were before. It's not wrong to do missions work. It's wrong to convert people to a false righteousness because they're going to be empty here, and they're going to spend eternity separated from God. They're going to be the very people that stand before Jesus that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons? Look at all the stuff we've done stuff they did was awesome. He says, depart from me. I didn't know you. What you were doing is you were double-minded. You're trying to travel down both paths and think that you could have this and have this, and you can't. What James says when he talks about the double-minded in James chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, deal with your idols. James chapter 4 and verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Oh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We'll talk about what it means to purify in a minute, because when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it means at least three things, and we see them all here in our passage. The first one is you'll be filled. It says in verse 6, you'll be fulfilled. It says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, which I think is interesting when you look at it real close. The hunger and thirst is actually a present participle in the, in the Greek text. And it says here, it's clearly, you will be filled, so you're going to experience satisfaction. And I wonder to myself, how can both things be true? How can I be presently hungering and thirsting and be satisfied? 
How can they both happen simultaneously? And the best I could do as I was thinking about it this week is I was reminded I had gone to lunch with the pastoral staff on Monday, and we went to Golden Corral. Judge me. Go ahead. It's all you can eat buffet. Our youth pastor who's not in, he's teaching the junior high right now, he always says uh, that he feels like an old guy when we take him to the Golden Corral. So apparently that's what's happening because I don't feel old. I just think there's lots of options. And so, hey, lots of options. When I got home that night, I was not hungry for dinner. But I'm hungry now. I get hungry again, but I was satisfied in my appetite, but then I want more still. Because you know what happens with an appetite is as you feed it, it grows. That can be true with bad appetites and with good appetites. When you feed them, they grow. And when you have a good thing, guess what? You want more of it. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and experience God, what they end up repeatedly doing is they, they can't, it's like they can't get enough of him. Have you read Moses in the book of Exodus? In Exodus, he, God speaks to him in a burning bush. He hears an audible voice from God. Fire oftentimes is a symbol of his holiness. He realizes he's on holy ground, takes off his sandals. He's humbled. He has an experience with God most of us never have. He stands before Pharaoh. He sees plague after plague, God doing miracles, not just doing miracles in front of him, but doing miracles through him. He sees the Red Sea parted. Then in Exodus chapter 33, he's seen all this stuff. He's seen all these miracles. He's seen the burning bush. He's seen the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 33, he's got the audacity to say this. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, now show me your glory. As a reader of the story, I think, hasn't he? But as the person experiencing it, it's, I want more. You showed yourself, I want more of you. It's the Apostle Paul. Think about Paul's story. Paul in Acts chapter 9 gets confronted by the resurrected Christ, audibly hears Jesus speak to him, has encounters with God throughout his life, spends three years in the desert being discipled by Jesus, goes out, plants churches, sees God do miracle after miracle, people getting saved, God saving his life. But then when he's writing to one of those churches, Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. Uh, I think you do, Paul. You do know Christ. I want to know Christ more. And the power of his resurrection. You heard the resurrected Christ. You've experienced victory over sin. What do you mean? I want more. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Even if I have to die on a cross too to understand my Savior better, I will do that is what he's saying. Becoming like him in his death, a selfless servant that he's just described in chapter 2 of Philippians. I want more of him. That's true righteousness. That's the righteousness that can be filled and still hunger and long for. It's like when I'm at my house, we'll eat a meal at my house. My wife will make some meal without cauliflower, and I'll be satisfied with it. And then we put the kids to bed, and then she'll turn on the Food Network, and we'll watch Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dies. And guess, the, guess what? Next thing I know, I'm in the kitchen making a snack. I'm not hungry. I'm physically not hungry. I've been filled. But I'm still longing. That's what we're talking about here. You hunger and thirst continually, because even in eternity, you'll be in the present tense. You always are where you are. And you will be filled, satisfied. You will be completely satisfied. But you keep, I want more, and I want more, because you taste and see that he's good. The reality is some of you don't long for him. You don't want him, and you've been honest about that. Some of you have been honest with me. I think of one guy that I talked to one time, he was so honest with me. He said, why is it? He comes to church all the time. You, outwardly, you think he's a great Christian. He says, I'll watch four hours of football on Sunday afternoon. I don't want to spend 15 minutes reading the Bible. Why? My advice to him, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. My advice to the person who's already hungry and thirsting, taste and see that he's good. You'll want more. How do you do that? You devour his word. Jeremiah the prophet talks about it. You've got to be in his word. He's spoken directly to us in his word. And you be with his people that are also the ones that are also doing that. And you're in community with people. You start to see him in the circumstances in your life. You see him at work in your life. You talk to him, you communicate to him through prayer. You've got to experience him yourself. You can't get it just from a preacher. You can't get it from somebody else having it. You must experience it and you will be filled. That's the first thing that happens with true righteousness. It leads to that satisfaction of that eternal longing that's in your soul. And then everything that happens in the Beatitudes after this are an overflow from that. And so last week, Pastor Jason talked about mercy. It's for those who are overflowing with righteousness that mercy becomes natural. You've received mercy, you give mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart. That's the one we'll look at today, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers that can help other people have peace with each other and other people have peace with God are those who have this filling of righteousness, not just a longing for righteousness, but you're so filled with righteousness that it overflows in your life, starts to clean the outside of the cup. The last beatitude that you'll see are blessed are the persecute, those who are persecuted for righteousness, not just for longing for righteousness, because righteousness is part of your life. 
Not because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not because you're a jerk. Not because you're arrogant. Because of your righteousness, blessed, happy. There's a happiness in the persecution because you've got that fellowship that Paul was talking about. I'll suffer for Christ. And he says here in this passage for the other verse that we'll look at today, in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Pure here is actually the same word that's used in Matthew 23 when it describes the cup. The word for clean in Matthew chapter 23 and the word for pure in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 are the same word. What does it mean? It means undivided. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the people who, God's the one who does the work. The filling is passive. God's the one who does the filling. You don't satisfy yourself. He satisfies you. And then the overflow becomes that you're pure in heart, that you're undivided in your heart. Pastor Dad read that verse from Psalm 24 earlier. Psalm 24 says, who can, who can come up into the presence of God? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? But then it says who? It's the people who've done what James chapter 4, verse 8 says, clean your hands, purify your hearts. He was clean hands and a pure heart. And what does it mean to have a pure heart? Who does not lift his soul to an idol? who's dealt with the false gods in their life. And God does that work. It's the person who loves God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's an undivided heart. Not traveling down two roads. I want to have as much of this world as I can possibly get and please God. But no, I realize I'm sinful and I realize I blow it. But I want you, Jesus. It's that heart. See, Paul's the one. He, I'm a wretched man. I am sinful. It's not that he was perfect. But his heart was undivided. I, I do the stuff that I don't even want to do. Yeah, it was that you didn't want to see. Well, many of us is that we want both. That's double-minded. That's where false righteousness comes from. The pure in heart are those who have an undivided heart. And what happens for them? Verse 8, they will see God. What does that mean? Well, we know we're going to see him in eternity. Those who have the righteousness of Christ that surpasses that of the Pharisees, because of the faith they placed in Jesus, are going to see God in eternity face-to-face. We'll know him, we'll be known by him, we will be with him, we'll be like him. He has a glorified body, we'll have a glorified body. We'll be in his kingdom, which by the way, his glory is going to light that city. Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 7 says there's not going to be hungering and thirsting. Like we think of hungering and thirsting, there's going to be total satisfaction. It's like a euphoric state continually for all of eternity. And we're going to see him. But what does it mean here and now? And my honest answer is, I'm not sure. But I've read a lot of people this week. At the beginning of the week, I read and I'm like, what in the world does it mean to see God? Because we know we can't see God because he's holy and we're not. And we'd die if we did. And we, the Bible says that. What does it mean to see God? And so, so different people talk about it through experiences. And we see him in creation, his handiwork, and all this stuff. By his grace, we see him. But I think very simply it means that we experience him personally. Not just we know stuff about him, like the demons do in the Gospels. Or like the Pharisees do. But we've experienced him, we've tasted and seen that he is good. And so we personally experience him. But the problem is that we love darkness because we get used to darkness and we don't want our sin to be exposed. And so we live in that darkness. And I read a story this week that I felt like that's, that's, that's what this is. That's what this means. It was about a woman who lived in California for 62 years. She was blind. She was born blind, lived for 62 years, then had a surgery at UCLA where they removed a cataract from her left eye. And then afterwards she had 20-30 vision, which my understanding is that's good enough to be able to pass a driver's test. And she talked about what it was like to see for the first time. Can you imagine? 62 years of darkness and then being able to see. She said everything was bigger and brighter than she had expected it to be. And she knew people by voices and experience and by touch. And she said that uh, some of her acquaintances were taller than, they thought, than she thought they would be and shorter than they thought that she thought they would be. Some were skinnier and some were fatter. And I don't think she told any of them that. <laughs> but she talked about, can you just even imagine 62 years not seeing and then seeing? And it was a great story, but it was tragic because as I read more details about the story, the surgeon from UCLA said that the surgery that she had, the techniques had been available for over 40 years of her life. And so she was needlessly blind for over 40 years. And then I think of us. Jesus says, I'm living water. I'm the bread of life. You hunger? I'm the bread of life. You thirst? I'm living water. I am the light of the world. I will shine light into your darkness. Why? We choose to be blind when the invitation is right there because we believe the deceptions. This will satisfy, this will satisfy, and until God lets us realize, some of us by obtaining it, some of us by in vanity striving for it, 
It's not going to do it because you have an eternal longing in your soul. And if I shine the light in, guess what it's going to do? It might not be pleasant. Because when he puts his finger on some of our idols, it's painful. But he's cleaning the inside of the cup. He's dealing with our hearts so we can have an undivided heart towards him. That's what he needs to do in some of our lives. So as we conclude, we're just going to bow our heads. and I'm going to challenge you to talk to the Lord. You know. And you might be able to fool me and fool everybody else, but you know if there's idols in your heart. You know if there's false gods that you're pursuing. And, but not, you also, too, want to be, and you're double-minded in that. And, and James tells us, purify your heart, clean your hand. Jesus wants to do that work in you. Some of you are blinded by this world. You're blinded by sin. You're blinded by deception. And Jesus offers you light. Somebody might need to trust Christ as their Savior. I hope you won't leave here today thinking that you need to quit swearing, quit be a better person, attend church more. But you'll place your allegiance, you'll change your allegiance, you'll place your allegiance in Jesus and shift it from yourself or shift it from your work or shift it from your religion or shift it from your own false righteousness and do your, put your trust, base your trust on what he did for you on the cross. When he died on the cross, that wasn't for him. He didn't have sin. That was for your sin so that you could then be declared righteous, that you could be seen as righteous, but you have to place your faith in Jesus. And if you want to do that, you can do it right now. Just acknowledge your sin before him. As we go to pray, as other people are praying around you, just say, God, I'm a sinner. I realize I need you. I believe your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I want to place my faith in your son Jesus. Will you come and save me? Just pray that to him. And many of you have done that. You've prayed that. You've trusted Christ. But then you know what he does? He began a good work in you, and he continues to work, and he continues to deal with our hearts, and he continues to pick out the stuff that's not bearing fruit. To pick out the false idols. To pick out the false gods. And he keeps doing that work. For some of you, he needs to do that work. I'm going to pray for us. You continue to talk to the Lord individually as you need to. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's someone who hasn't trusted your son Jesus that needs to right now, I pray that right now would be the moment of salvation. They wouldn't miss this opportunity. They would place their faith in your son Jesus. Place their trust in him. He's the one, the only one that can bring true satisfaction. I pray they would be with you in eternity. I pray that they wouldn't leave here today believing any other lies, that they would trust in you when you begin a good work in them. And I pray for those that you've begun a good work in. Each one of us continually needs to be repenting, and God, you know what we need to repent of. And I pray that you would deal with the idols in our hearts, our own pursuit of glory, our desire for position, for sex, for drugs, for different people, different stories. And you know, in this room, probably hundreds different false gods could be mentioned but you know will you speak to the individual hearts and put your finger on it even if that's painful and just like the woman at the well will you transform her life will you transform his life those who need to deal with their idols I pray that we'd be like we sang in that song earlier that we wouldn't lift our souls to another you'd give us clean hands you'd give us pure hearts that we'd lift our hearts to you that we'd love you God, cleanse us with your blood. Cleanse us with your forgiveness. We repent. We turn to you. We need your grace. We need you. I want to long for you. Even give us the desires that we need, that we'd hunger and thirst after true righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray.